Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. The UK's only All Things Union Podcast. Designed for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. In this episode, tech workers get unionised in Utah. That's a tech workers union, not a state in the US. Mel Sims on why we cannot forget the young. The Labour Research Department gives us the lowdown on homeworking after the pandemic. And Josiah Mortimer has his radical roundup. Oh, hello, welcome. Welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper and we have a fantastic episode for you. This time round, our special guests are going to be John and Mark, two officers from the fairly newly formed Union of Tech and Allied Workers or Utah. They've had a tumultuous first year in operation, growing the union from zero dealing with employers who think London is just an extension of New York when it comes to employment rights and what life is like as a national branch of the much larger, much longer established Communication Workers' Union. We'll be getting the lowdown on how the pandemic has changed thinking about homeworking and what we as unions need to watch out for from the Labour Research Department. Also, of course, the indomitable Professor Mel Sims, Professor of Work and Employment at the University of Glasgow, with her thought for the week this week, amusing on why we should never, could never, forget younger workers. And we have the equally indomitable Josiah Mortimer with his preview of this week's Radical Roundup. All the news that you probably won't see about the trade union movement in the mainstream media. So a packed show, a cornucopia of content. Where to start? Um, I've got to say the chat with Marcus and John from Utah really is kind of pin your ears back stuff that's well worth waiting for but i'll tell you what let, first let's let's turn to mel mel sims a professor of work and employment university of glasgow now when it comes to young workers i think we would all acknowledge that they've paid a heavy price in terms of employment or lack of employment during the pandemic younger workers you know dominate the workforce when it comes to hospitality and when it comes to retail those two sectors have really taken a hammering even more so than many other uh, econ- economic sectors large numbers of people have lost their jobs already large numbers of young people still on furlough and you know it's a it's a very hard challenging time for them now as mel will t- will tell us in a piece recorded before the outcome of the scottish elections were known the impact on employment when you're young can last much, much longer than just the period when you are out of work or looking for work. May is often the time for elections in the UK, so I've been reviewing the policies of the main parties standing in Scotland. And whoever wins, it's clear that the scale of the challenges ahead are huge here and around the world. I think it absolutely goes without saying that the priority for all governments is to make sure that COVID is under control and the economy starts to reopen. That will obviously reduce pressures on the state to subsidise businesses and workers, uh, particularly in sectors where they've had to cease trading. But once things do open up, there's still going to be a huge job ahead, even if the anticipated consumer boom does get going. 
The problem is that all the evidence from previous recessions shows that many young workers never really catch up if they move out of education into a labour market that's in recession. And that's sometimes what we call a scarring effect, because the consequences of that can be seen in all sorts of economic and well-being data throughout someone's life. So there's going to have to be a massive concerted effort to support young people who've missed the opportunity to make smooth transitions from education to work. And initiatives that are being discussed by UK political parties include some very interesting ideas around things like a a young person's job guarantee, um, supporting specific sectors such as retail and hospitality, which are often the first destinations for young uh, workers moving into employment. Um, Ideas like paid internships are also being discussed, particularly for graduate uh, workers. And of course, many parties are looking at the whole structure of skills and vocational training and looking at how they can invest and support that further. And all of these are important initiatives. But the thing that's sort of missing, I think, from the agenda at the moment is the commitment to making this an ongoing investment. So politicians, but also the rest of us need to pledge not to forget these young people. Our lives will soon start to return to something that looks a bit more like normal. But they are going to need to continue uh, to have support from the state, but also from the rest of us as employers, managers, colleagues, friends and family. And that, if you like, is the job of work ahead of us as well as politicians thanks for that Mel really important issue that that's raised there because if there is this scarring effect and there is consistent literature over decades that demonstrates there is a scarring effect in the way that Mel has described and you can find links to some of those papers by the way in the companion blog to this podcast which you can find over on the makesyouthink.com website so if we have the scarring effect what do we do about it well the kind of conventional wisdom again is you are very very careful about how much you pay younger workers because you don't want to price them out of the labor market you don't want to price them out out of a job Uh, you know and i i intuitively i feel uncomfortable about that i have to say i don't know about you listeners there is a debate to be had about what the appropriate response is to the risk or the actuality of youth unemployment of course you know we could we could take preemptive action couldn't we we before we even get to talking about what the right rate of pay is to maximize employment for any particular age group we could actually take a step back and say what preventative means can government or employers take and it would be government more than employers i think to safeguard employment and income for younger workers as a particular category because of the scarring effect. And that, of course, takes a determined effort from central government. It takes proactivity. It means being on the front foot and imaginative and innovative in what in what, what you're doing. And, of course, that's the thinking behind the Kickstart program that the TUC negotiated with the government at the start of the pandemic. And it's a consistent theme in government policy. So there's a recognition there that something needs to be done. The question is how to make it as effective as possible. You know, it's a it's a really live debate anyway, and it's particularly important at the moment. What do you think the best course of action is? What do you think should ha- happen in order to protect younger workers from this scarring effect? You can email the show at unionjews at makesyouthink.com. You can tweet us at Jews Union. Tell us what you think. Share your views. We're all ears. Join the conversation. <laughs> Now to our special guests for this episode. Once upon a time, there was a thing called the TWC, 
the Tech Workers Coalition. In a federation of groups of tech workers, mostly in the US, but with some outposts in places like London. Now, the London chapter found numbers attending their meetings increasing and lots and lots of common issues, irrespective of the employer. Gender pay gaps, poor working conditions, unreasonable deadlines and no obvious structure to allow these issues to be addressed collectively. So, Utah was born, the Union of Tech and Allied Workers. But they knew they couldn't do what they needed to do alone. A partnership was needed. To cut a long story short, Utah became a national branch of the CW in 2020. I hooked up with John Chadfield and Mark Storm to chat about their journey so far and what lies ahead. John, Marcus, officers of the Union of Tech and Allied Workers, you are very welcome to the Union News podcast. Thank you so much for taking time to join us. Thank you for having us. And I, I mean, I suppose that my immediate thoughts about the creation of the union would be, how did the idea of this union come up as opposed to forming a group or, or a network? What was the... What, you know, what, what was the attraction of a union specifically and what issues were there that needed to be addressed at the beginning? So um, so I'll take that. I'm John. I'm the branch secretary um, of, uh, of the United Tech and Allied Workers, or Utah as we call it. Um, so actually we start, you know, the Utah came out of a working group of the Tech Workers Coalition London. So the Tech Workers Coalition is a large network of activists and labor organizers all around the world that really actually came out of Silicon Valley in the States, uh, which is obviously the, the, the home of the tech tech world. And I was part of uh, a small group of people that w- was at that first Tech Workers Coalition London session um, that we had in real life when we were doing those things back in 2019, I guess, early summer 2019. And, and when we you know, when we all came together, it was very obvious from the start that a lot of us were looking to not just organise, but actually take advantage of the of the union opportunity that's available to us in this country compared with our American counterparts who have to go through a lot more strenuous process, you know, a card pledge process uh, in order to win a union. Whereas anyone here obviously can can just can just join one. So so it was very early on with Tech Workers Coalition. There, it was set as a goal to create a union and that working group was set up very early on and that working group you know we ended up becoming becoming Utah and we ended up talking to different unions and discussing different options and finding the right fit for us and and, and here we are gosh yeah I mean we'll, we'll come on to the, the the relationship between Utah and the communication workers union in a moment but what was it that even when it was still the tech workers co- co- coalition, what what were the issues that were confronting people who you would seek to recruit who have already joined, which led them to say, yeah, what we need here is not a group or a network, but we need the power of a union? Well, I think in the early days, there was, when we were, so we held regular meetings in the May Day rooms off Fleet Street, and we'd get really good turnouts. And about every, every week, we'd kind of get 10 to 20 new people who were not coming from any grassroots organisation or the labour movement, were, were tech workers. And every time we had introduced the concept of unions and organizing and the same stories came up it was gender pay gap it was bullying in the workplace or it was i want the company i work for to hold themselves to the ethical issues that they claim to be so some of the big tech companies there were some fantastic grassroots movements within them microsoft amazon google that's you know various social justice things and actually that's where a lot of our activists have come from they've not come from 
the trade union movement of all our members now, hundreds of members now since starting, you know, very few have got a trade union background. You know, even on the committee, I think there's only a handful of us that have, that have been in unions for our working lives. The rest have come through grassroots activist movements that might be social justice related, might be climate justice related. Uh, but that's that's where they've seen the, the benefits of organising and then that's articulated into them connecting the dots of, oh actually, okay, there's no representation for labour or the workers in this sector for very good, valid re historical reasons, particularly in this country. And they've connected the dots saying, okay, well maybe we can organise on these terms as well. And then the, the, the actual things, the actual cases, the actual problems and complaints are no different to any other any other workplace. You know, they're fairly standard bread and butter stuff for any trade union. So, 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 Marcus, what, what's been the attitude that you've come across from, from employers? I mean, a lot of them, in the same way that the that, that workers in this sector have not been organised uh, for a period of time, employers are, are not used to dealing with a, collect, a collective voice. Have they pushed back aggressively? Have some welcomed it? Has COVID changed things massively? How, how, how has it been from that point that you described, John, to where you are now? So my name is Marcus Storm. I am the comms officer for Utah. I talk to the press regarding Utah's activities. In addition to that, I am a rep for Utah. So I do get involved with dealing with uh, casework on an ongoing basis. And it's really interesting that you've asked, Simon, what the attitudes are towards us because I honestly think that from everyone we've talked to, everybody we've worked with, that there is a generational shift in the attitudes towards unions. I think the last time the unions were in the news every day was maybe the 80s. And now there's a lot of young people, especially with no living memory of what that time was and furthermore a lot of those people work in tech and people are coming around to the idea that unions are a force for progressive employment rights they're here to protect our workplaces and make sure that we are represented in our workplaces so in actual fact um the question as to our employers perhaps hostile to Utah showing up. I found that a lot of employers surprisingly welcome uh, the formation of unions because it makes it easier for them to deal with their staff in one way or another. Remember that the economy today is very much more dynamic than it was, again, a, a generation ago. So new companies are coming and going all the time, especially small and medium-sized companies. They don't have the large HR uh, support functions that larger companies have to, to accurately deal with and follow workplace legislation. So when workers come with increased awareness and collective asks, a lot of these are seen as very reasonable uh, by employers. So that's been very positive. I know people, uh, I won't name them, but heads of companies who are saying, you know, it'd be really interesting, actually, it'd be really good to have a union present in our workplace because we want to see that. We want to see employees be engaged uh, with the workplace. It's, it's basically a, a reversal of all this um, newspeak 
really of employee awareness, employee well-being and so on, but formalized it in a way that makes it easier to deal with on a legal basis. Well, that, that's good to hear. It, and, and certainly, listeners, if you Google Utah, you will see the results of Marcus's efforts, which is a, which is a slew of really positive, wide, of course, wide range of publications, publicity for the union. What's the inf- impact of COVID been on your organising and, and recruiting efforts? I suppose as much a help as a hindrance. It's interesting. I think one thing I'd add to what Marcus is saying is completely right. But actually, we've had we've had CEOs of, of fairly decent sized startups, venture backed startups, emailing in saying, "How can I? How can I create a union shop?" So that's a really that's that's a nice problem for us to have, an interesting conversation to have. And that, that we've had a couple of those. Um, and again, we've not really launched properly or started any recruitment campaign. So also the CEOs themselves, some of them, was at least C level, they want to join. Right? They're like, can I can I join as a CEO? Yeah. So those are all those are all good problems for us to have and uh, interesting conversations just to have. But sorry, going back to COVID, it's both uh, a hindrance. Obviously, we we have been planning this for for a while, and in normal times, the way we would operate, like any union, there'll be a lot more in person stuff and. I know for any listeners that are in unions or been involved with the, the, the movement, which of course I, uh, most of you will be, but you know there's that enormous energy you get from going to from, to, the, to these meetings and conferences uh, and, and, and these connections you, you form that stay with you for, for your whole life, you know, especially for people in your union outside of the workplace. And we've not had that, but we've, we've, we've done our best and we've created online communities and, they, and they've blossomed, they really have, truly, and it's, it's, it's a sight to behold that all these people that one year ago may never have even heard of a trade union are now actively involved or on a reps training cohort. You know, something I, I'm very proud of and I know that you know, everyone else involved with is COVID, COVID's been bad in, in the sort of lack of face-to-face, but it has highlighted some issues that have been underlying for a while and brought people to look for solutions outside of the ones that are offered by their employers, right? You know, when you're being bullied and gaslit and your mental health is being affected, you don't want a free, you know, a free month subscription to, to a mindfulness app. That's not going to do it for you, right? You know, HR aren't going to look after you the way that they think you might think they will. Um, they might hasten your exit, but really it's, it's, it's only a group of fellow workers organised into a union in the way that we are that people can turn to and people will come to us in enormous periods of crisis and they found a friendly ear and practical advice and actual, you know, material support to help them through their thing. And we've had lovely messages from people that didn't know about, you know, that's as Marcus said, like there's a generation of people in their 20s and 30s now that, you know, thanks to essentially what Thatcher was doing in the early 80s and levering all the arms of the state to uh, crush and propagandize against workers organizing, you know, they've not heard of unions. You know, not even the propaganda anymore. That's that's rollout of, out of the information flow, like even the anti-union propaganda. So. You know the TUC has done work on this, and, and when they when they try and talk to young people, the biggest problem they've they've got is the the answer is what is a trade union? I don't know what that is. Yeah, I mean I've I've been into rooms of uh, rooms full of you know eighty to 100, 17, 18 year olds, and I say I say to them, hands up if you know what a union is. One or two hands at most. That's because their mum's a teacher or their mum's a nurse or something. Or you well, know. exactly. I, I suppose people w- would say if if a union like Utah can't make the most of technology in a in a pandemic, then. Um, there's no hope for the, the rest of us. But but I, I, I wonder, what, what's on the current uh, agenda? What are the objectives in terms of organising and negotiating at the moment? I know you've just launched a campaign about 
about remote monitoring and surveillance, which I think is very, very timely as working from home in some cases becoming, becomes embedded in a post-pandemic norm. But what, what else, what are, the, what are the main things that you find coming across your desk? I'd say there are uh, a few main objectives we have. So firstly is related to, uh, obviously we want to grow Utah. We want to make sure that anyone who has the chance to be in Utah gets the chance to do so. And to do that, they have to be aware of us. They have to, they have to know we exist, firstly. Um, because it's your it's your statutory right to join a union if you want to. And we know a lot of people, uh, so many members, as John said, have come to us and they said, it's so exciting that I get to be part of this because I didn't know this existed. And I would have signed up even earlier if I had. So that's the first objective. The second objective is to help with the enforcement of existing regulations. So what John said about the generational shift uh, away from unions. Now, one of the consequences of that has been decreased awareness of workplace rights, especially when, again, work is becoming more and more fragmented, more and more discretized. You have lots of workplaces with workers coming in and out, and they have no time to share knowledge, and everything's a bit transitory. So... Existing regulations, even going back to the health and safety, 1974, I think, that's very important. I have a couple of friends who were speaking to during the pandemic. And one of my friends, I went over to his house when, when things lifted a bit last summer. And he'd been working on this wooden stool for about six months. And I said, you know, why have you been working on this wooden stool? And he's like, he, he just moved to London. He hasn't been able to go and find a, a proper chair. And I'm there thinking, this is probably illegal because you have to, as an employer, provide your employees with the equipment they need to work safely and effectively. And if my friend suffers some sort of injury because of this, then I'm pretty sure they'd be liable. But again, I, di I didn't know. And he didn't know because we don't have people in the workplace, uh, even acting on these very, very old, um, I'd say fundamental regulations such as health and safety. And these, these change, these evolve, because working from home is a different environment to working in a, a factory or in, in a raw mail branch or, or something else. So existing regulation, very important. Data Protection Act 2018, very important. We are still working through this ourselves. We're looking at when is monitoring legal? What steps do employers have to take? Because they do have to take steps under existing legislation to tell you if you're being monitored, to let you know how your data is being used. And there have been court cases that uh, other unions have gone through regarding this. So uh, not many people are aware of this. And the third aspect, the third goal is to keep an eye on future legislation. So... <clears throat> The Data Protection Act 2018 is our, the UK's implementation of GDPR. We've left the EU now, so we don't have to have that anymore. And there were rumours earlier this year that the government would try to change that legislation. And we feel responsible for looking at any proposed changes very, very, very closely and examining the consequences that 
it might have on the workplace. Because if it's not us, then uh, who is going to look at it? Who is going to represent the workers from our side? So those are the three three goals. So firstly, expand the union to people who want to join. Secondly, to help enforce and increase awareness of existing legislation. And finally, look at future legislation and influence that. Great. I mean, that sounds like a, a full agenda. And I mean, membership, I, th- I think I read somewhere, I think it was somewhere in a CW press release that membership has gone from like zero to the best part of a thousand in in a little under a year. Is that, am I in the right ballpark there? I don't think it's, it's not quite a thousand yet, but we, um, we've we been around, what, uh, seven months? We've, uh, we're getting close. Like, we, we, we've exceeded expectations. We didn't really set ourselves anything too onerous because, because of COVID, basically. We knew we couldn't do any big bang launches and we had to take things slowly. But what we have, what we got to very quickly is, you know, a core, well, I say a core, you know, hundreds of people that were waiting to join a union. And then, and then the ones that I talked about earlier, which came to it through different, through different routes and, and, and different avenues. And, and Marcus is right, like one of the biggest jobs that we still got to do, in fact, the biggest job, is translating what a union is and does and the benefits to a generation that that doesn't understand what they are, has no history, has no you know cultural history with 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 unions. So there's a, there's an awful lot of work's doing just those three things. And yeah, there's plenty in the fundamental in the fundamentals of the labour law that you have in this country that we've got to make sure that people are aware of. And the employee surveillance is a fantastic first campaign for us because not only is it something we're affected by as you know tech is made the moves already to be remote first but also who who is more credible to talk about this than trade unionists that are all you know from technical backgrounds and genuinely understand the technology being employed against home workers so already we're getting a lot of requests for comment from the press and all that kind of stuff as a credible source for a a foil against the sort of the, the the corporate pr spin on this that's that's excellent and and, and we were saying before we we got into the kind of formal recording stuff that you've now got two cohorts of reps that have both been through basic training so there is a real there's a core of activists there who can help organize and and meet and meet that particular need that's uh, that's tremendous yeah uh it's become self-sustaining a lot quicker than i thought it would you know i think someone told me once when when we were you know a small working group looking to get this together they said uh you know the hardest thing is getting to 10 getting 10 people that want the same thing and then we seem to have from 10 people to hundreds of people we've done that in about seven months and in those hundreds of people like i said people have volunteered for their time to take on like marcus marcus has taken on fantastic comms role does a great job and is a rep as well and is an ambassador for the union and we've got other people like marcus putting themselves through that training and able to help and support other members so it's it's become self-sustaining in a really rapid amount of time that's it that's a great that's a great credit to those who are involved I mean, I'd like to explore, if I can, the relationship with the with the CW, the Communication Workers Union, because it seems to me that 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 actually could be transformational, not just in terms of Utah, but in terms of unionization in the sector as a whole. Because when you think of, of the resources and the experience of a union like the CWU, if there's an effective synergy between the organizing capacity and potential in the main union and the needs of you as a, as a kind of national branch, that's kind of nuclear fusion land, really, isn't it? <laughs> For you, you're organizing. But what, ha, ha, I mean, did you approach them? Did they approach you? How do you engage with the rest of the union? How does all that stuff work? We approached them. We, um, we like I said, we got we got to a point where the working group kind of, we had um, enough interest and mandate from, a, from people in Tech Workers Coalition in London 
to say actually let's let's crack on and do this and see and see how it would work if we wanted to work with an existing union. And we talked to some and we had some interesting conversations. But the, the CWU and Dave Ward particularly joined us on that very first call. Other other conversations with unions, general secretaries, especially this union is the largest CWU hadn't joined us on that first call. Dave joined us straight away was really excited, completely got what we wanted, the autonomy, the support, the vision we had. And actually, to be fair to the CWU and the leadership there, it's not a million, the, the, the national branch, slightly more independent identity and, and, and forays into greenfield industries, it's not a million miles away at all from what they were thinking anyway. We came along at a fortuitous time, and you know, for those of your listeners that have tried to get changes, structural changes done inside their union and how long that can take. Well, it took about eight weeks in the CWU because it, they, the membership got it, the NEC really got it, and it was aligned with things they wanted to do anyway. So it, it all happened very quickly. Is there still um, a relationship with Tech Workers Coalition, though? I mean, I understand absolutely the differences between the US recognition model and the, the UK one, which means you've got to treat things that are happening on either sides of the Atlantic somewhat differently. But nevertheless, the Tech Workers Coalition does a lot of good stuff as far as I can see. Is there still that, are there still those connections? Do you still, are you still able to plug into their work and they, they inform some of what you're doing? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think um, the, 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 the cross-Atlantic thing is an interesting point. Actually, it's something Marcus always touched on earlier, which is one of the things we see here is that obviously a lot of the bigger tech companies are American. And they see London as just a, a, a satellite city, just like New York, just like Seattle, just like Boston. And so one of the most common things we've got, which goes back to that kind of fundamentals thing Marcus was talking about, is actually we see a lot of employees show us their contracts and T's and C's, and it's American labor law. It's completely unenforceable here. Um, that's really common for the big companies. But, it, but that just also goes to show you the, the dynamic between US tech companies and understanding what the, what the UK labor law is. Essentially, they don't really care. But going back to the Tech Workers Coalition, yeah, we've still, we've still got fantastic links with them. And also from the Tech Workers Coalition in the States, unions have been born, you know, starting with the Kickstarter union. Um, you've also now got the Alphabet Workers um, Union, which is, which is part of our sister union, Communication Workers of America in the States. US Steel Workers is doing stuff as well. Yahtzee is doing stuff. You know, it is starting to gather a pace over there. And we are dialed in and connected with all those unions at the worker level, which is the most important bit. And, and ditto the same is in, in um, continental Europe as well. Tech Workers Coalition has spread to, to Germany, Italy, Slovakia, and you know we're, we're plugged into to, to comrades over there and what they're up to. There's so much energy in this. This is what is so appealing and, and makes one feel so optimistic. But Marcus, I wonder, in over the last seven months or so, as, as there's been this journey, what are the things that have most surprised you, either either for, for, for good or bad? going to turn that question on its head, Simon, and I'm going to say what's the least surprising in retrospect, because I've, I was speaking to the Telegraph the other day, so I speak to, speak to everybody, I speak from Al Jazeera, uh, Financial Times, whatever, because I, in my opinion, we're here to help employees uh, understand their rights and help employers make and create better workplaces and nurture their future leaders. So everybody's interested in what we're doing. It doesn't matter, actually. And some people are surprised by that, some people aren't. And what the correspondent from The Telegraph asked was regarding the Alphabet Workers Union. Uh, she said, 
is it surprising that all of these new unions are forming, uh, especially during COVID? Uh, is there a big trend here? And I said, well, no, it's not surprising at all. Because if you had spoken to the people inside Google, for example, well, you, you'll know that the style of management was always very collaborative between management and workers. So the way I see Alphabet Workers Union forming, and other medium workers union forming, and so on, Amazon's an exception, is that the employers are simply formalizing their powers. So it's, it's, less, it's less revolutionary than, than people think. Uh, that's in my view. Because lots of consultation was happening already, what is different is that the workers realized that they want to formalize their power in some way. They weren't happy with just being asked on what to do. They wanted some kind of actual representation on board or, or whatever, uh, some sort of decision-making power. And that, in my opinion, reflects that the increased awareness amongst the worker population, even without unions. Right? Union membership had been declining everywhere uh, from 80s, I think. Again, the 80s, it was going down, 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 both as a percentage of workers and in absolute numbers. Right? Even though the population grew, the number of workers grew, the union membership went down. And that totally reversed in COVID-19. So going back to what actually was surprising, the, the number of union members went up dramatically last year. Uh, and that's been great for those of us interested in seeing the union movement revive. But I think that we have still a long way to go. We can't take that for granted. We can't just say, oh, it went up, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to go up again. No, it's up to us now to push our uh, viewpoints, as in we think you should join a union uh, if you can, for example. And we have to continue adapting and evolving. And Utah, I think, is a fantastic example that unions can evolve. CWU, for example, has been around for forever. <laughs> and now it's helping Utah set up, it's helping tech workers organize. And it requires a completely different organizational structure. Everything's online. When CWU was formed, the internet didn't exist, right? So having the same structures as in it's workers and it's against managers, uh, that sort of political structure it doesn't we have to think about that again we have to adapt to new challenges in technology new challenges in workplaces new challenges uh, around people and generational shifts so we have to remain agile and we have to remain on the ball and focus as well because we can't just rely on trends uh, to sweep us uh, back into huge membership numbers again i don't think that's given at all we have to work very very hard for that no, no, that's that's really interesting. And that view about larger unions being the incubator or the host or the launch pad for for new unions and new industries is is I think a really a really really interesting one. Just as our time kind of draws to a close, just just if you were to, if we were to meet again in twelve months' time, you've just had your first AGM. So if we were to meet again just after your second AGM, what do you hope will have been achieved in that in the in the next twelve months? I think um, and we're on track for this already. We will have we'll start to have some recognition agreements 
So we'll, we'll do some of that stuff that the bigger unions or existing unions have been trying to do in our sector for a long time. And because we've gone about it a different way, I think we're going to succeed. So I think, so, we'll, so yeah, in union speak, we'll have some things like union recognition in place. I expect our numbers would have tripled and, 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 and that steady growth would be there. We also will become, it's kind of what I was saying earlier, like for things like employee surveillance, you know, for other topics that affect not just tech workers, but workers across the economy, you know, and we could have a whole other podcast on what is a tech worker, you know, it's essentially, you know, our, our, our definition is actually really broad. It's anyone, anyone whose labor goes into the profits of a tech company, guess what? Pretty much everyone's a tech company now, right? So that could be delivery riders and delivery software developers. They're both tech workers. That's one another. Uh, you know, and transfer to Amazon. Amazon, you know, fulfillment center workers uh, are working for a big tech company. You know, why wouldn't we consider them tech workers just as much as a software developer at Google or indeed a security guard at Google? You know, it's, they're all tech workers to us. So, so it's about it's about establishing um, that narrative, about understanding exactly, um, you know, where we're located in the economy and how important the, the sector is. Um, and becoming a credible source so that workers' views can be at the table. You know, employee surveillance is a classic example. Like when the press comes to Marcus for a comment on on those kind of things, like that's us. That's gonna, that's we're going to be able to represent that authentic, credible view from both a workers' point of view and a technical point of view. And that there will be similar um, topics and themes that we we become that source on, and that help engage and grow our union so that we can then move into the next phase of the kind of classic bread and butter organizing by numbers stuff that we hope we can get to. But yeah, so it's, it's, it's a year of sustainable, steady, slow growth, raising awareness uh, and just setting the tone really. It's not, we haven't got any sort of big bang milestones or goals. Like we think some recognition agreements will come along in the next year, but that's it's not actually our hundred percent focus. It's, it's the other stuff. I mentioned. No, that is, that's a great agenda. That is, that's, that is glass half full and looking to make it make it fuller, which, which is great. Marks, any final thoughts for, uh, or comments from yourself? I think John is uh, of the under-promise and over-deliver mentality. I certainly hope <laughs> that there will be a, a big bang. and we, we more than triple our membership and it's it's much faster than slow and steady. But obviously that's, um, that's the minimum of what we want to, to see. We want to see more members from the regions uh, outside London. And actually COVID-19 has been very good for that. We have lots of Scottish members, for example, that wouldn't have been able to engage with us if COVID-19 had happened and we weren't all online. The other two goals as well, a bigger membership does feed into that. So I'd like to see more workplaces being aware of existing legislation and being more forceful in enforcing them whether they're employees or employers. And then finally, I'd like to see that we, we have uh, uh, influence in policy debates, which do affect uh, the future of work. Uh, again, it's very, it's, it's always below the surface, isn't it? Reforms to working regulations and models. So anything that comes our way, again, it's entirely unpredictable because we, we don't, we're not the government, we don't legislate, right? But any legislation comes out which we think could be better than 
you can count on us to fight that. And we will be watching that space very carefully. It's been a, a joyous half hour or so in your company, gents. Thank you both very much indeed. And, and every success to Utah going forward. Yeah, thank you for having us on, Simon. Thanks for having us. Come back in a year and, and tell, you, uh, tell you how much we've over-delivered on those things. <laughs> My thanks to John and Mark for a really, really good discussion. You can find out more about Utah, including how to join at utah.tech forward slash about. And I'm sure you'll agree that uh, each one of those issues could be a, a Union Jews episode in itself. I'm not quite sure what caught your ear as it were. But John's point about who is a tech worker is a fascinating and vital debate. Is it just developers, programmers and analysts who work for Microsoft or Google or whatever? Or is it everyone who depends on tech for their work, like Deliveroo riders or people who use the waiting game platform? And what does that mean for union organising strategies? Then there's the proliferation of unions working in the tech space, as well as UTOR, there's Prospect, Community, Unite, NUJ, the Game Workers Union, which is part of the IWGB family, the TCU Creators Union. I mean, in fairness, there is room for everyone, given the still low number of members, but some sort of joined up approach would, would seem to make sense. You can read more about all this at a new online publication called Tech Worker, conveniently located at techworker.com. Full disclosure, by the way, I'm on their advisory board. John and Mark also touched on the differences between pathways to recognition in the US and the UK. I'm, I'm, I'm really not going to dive into that that one here and now, but the legal framework for union recognition really does make a big difference in recruitment strategies. And finally, there's the whole idea of flexible union structures. Mark was wrong on one point. The CWU hasn't been around for ages, only since 1995, when it was formed from a merger uh, between the UCW and the NCU. But in that time, it has had national branch structures, not just for UTOR, but for postmasters and members working for the old Alliance and Leicester group. The adaptability of union structures, or not, can have a profound impact on alliances partnerships, mergers, and growth. I, I could go on. I really could go on. But but what's your view? What was the most exciting, interesting, or just helpful insight from that session with John and Mark? You know what to do. Union Jews at makesyouthink.com or Twitter at Jews Union. Let us know what you think. Now, one of the things that COVID-19 has clearly done has been to change the working lives of millions of people. And as restrictions start to ease... Obviously, employers, employees, unions, we're all considering how much home or remote working we want to maintain or sustain in the post-pandemic world. Because broadly speaking, home working's proved to be really popular. At the peak of the pandemic, 40% of workers were home-based and 75% of employees across a broad range of industries want some form of working from home once things get back to normal, whatever normal is, and more than one in 10 would prefer working from home all the time. But... Of course, there are downsides as well. And therefore, the publication by the Labour Research Department of a negotiator's guide to homeworking could not be more timely. I was very pleased to have the chance to sit down and have a chat with report author Natalie Towner. So, Natalie, this new Labour Research Department publication on homeworking, what, what's the kind of size and shape of the issue here? 
Well, basically now is a period of huge transition. You know, we've had large numbers of people working at home since March 2020. But now as lockdown eases, we're, we're looking at more permanent working arrangements. And it's really important that all of this is done through negotiation, not imposition. And, and unions are obviously wanting to be involved in this process and, and to ensure that the employee voice is heard. I mean, there will be lots of different um, requests. People will be pulling in different directions. And it's, a, and it's a real opportunity, in fact, going forward. You know, this is actually quite exciting, but a lot has to be considered. There's a lot of detail to look at and it needs to be done properly. So we're really sort of warning against sort of blanket changes and, you know, selling of offices to save money or pulling everyone back in Monday to Friday. We just want to make sure that, you know, there's a, there's a proper conversation is had at this point. But I suppose it's important, isn't it, that unions themselves are not... Uh, are not tempted to kind of like throw the baby out with the bathwater, uh, as it were, and simply upend all pre-existing work arrangements. Because while many workers, it seems, are positive about being able to work home in some capacity, not everyone can, not everyone wants to. Yeah, that's right. And for some workers, it's been incredibly difficult. You know, they felt incredibly disconnected at home, felt really stressed and isolated. You know, obviously, sometimes it's quite practical. They just simply don't have the space at home. They're not set up. They, They live in small flats. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, people have found that they've been working much longer hours. You don't have that natural demarcation between home and work life, you know, when you log off and you get on the train or in the car. And, and they, you know, the laptop's there the whole time. So they, they found that, you know, they've been living at work, really. And so some people have really, really struggled. And it will be really important for some people to get back, back into an office environment. And without wanting to, to generalise or, or stereotype, are some demographics generally more reluctant about homework than others absolutely I mean generally young people are really quite keen to get back and it's perfectly understandable I mean a lot of them their their home arrangements are just not set up you know they might be in a flat share they might still be living with their parents or living alone and you know there's lots of stories of people who've been working you know off, you know off in their bedroom really and, and it's not just just a practical side it's it's a social side it's really important for, for young workers to be around other people it's how they learn you, you know that they, they they learn by seeing what other people are doing and, and it's, it's also true people who are, who are new to a job you know you don't appreciate all that informal knowledge you acquire just you know from s- small chats you know when you're making a cup of coffee you know that institutional knowledge we take for granted so so the new recruits and young workers I, I, I would say they, that a lot of them will be very keen to have some office experience coming and, and up. Is there is there a risk as well that that if people are working remotely it's almost like their their needs, their voices aren't heard in the debate or their voices Absolutely. aren't in the debate. Absolutely. That's a really good point. I mean, unions are warning, you know, we really need, that's part of the, one of the huge things that needs to be worked through now is that we don't have this two-tier workforce emerging where people are at home and their voices aren't heard and they don't pick up on communications and, you know, then their voices aren't heard in meetings. That that really needs to be factored in to make sure that, you know, that they are as present as anyone. And that, that's going to be a lots of detail. And obviously, obviously, some people will be sometimes at work, sometimes in the office. How will those meetings, how will meetings happen? And uh, but yes, it, w- it would be really important to make sure that they are factored in into any decision making going forward. So, so the, the timing is right. There's clearly an, aud- an audience for this. What what does the book cover? The book covers, so the, initially it looks at all the different scenarios about how you can work, all the different working arrangements that are possible and the pluses and negatives of each. And, you know, what it means for a rep, you know, is if a rep has to consider how do they represent workers at home? How do they, how often do they reach out to them? How do they reach out to them? What platforms do they use? 
And there's actually quite a big practical side to this booklet. We we had a lot of input from our, our legal researcher, you know, how to deal with imposition if, you know, if you're being told you know, to do something that isn't what you want. And, you know, setting up, we look at setting up collective home working arrangements for different factors there to consider around sort of, um, you know, who pays for what. That's going to be really important because during the pandemic, you know, everything was sort of done on the hoof and everyone did the, made the best of it as they could. But now we're going to have to look at who pays for what. And we want that to be very, very clearly set out and implications for your mortgage if you're working from home for your insurance. But also, obviously, reps will have a huge role to play in terms of health and safety and um, making sure that risk assessments happen, awareness raising, making sure people have the right equipment that they're properly set up at home. So that, that's, that's going to be that's a huge role for the reps going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we, we, the pandemic, I think, taught us to uh, be very kind of binary, sort of black and white about things, yeah. right? Yeah, we can't, we can't commute, we can't go into offices, we're all going to work at home, that's it. And now... Yeah. You know, as we consider the matter in a more rounded way, there is a you know there's a huge role for unions and yeah. a you know a very significant relevant checklist of all the, you know, all the yeah things yeah. To I mean, I forgot to mention you know I mean Prospects done some brilliant work on sort of privacy rights and and sort of date you know data protection. And, you know, there's a lot of concern because, you know, workers are entitled to privacy, you know, where, wherever they are. And obviously, you know, you can see there's a whole added layer to that if they're working in their home. But there's a lot of uh, concern now about sort of email monitoring and, you know, phone monitoring and obviously even you know, like keystroke logging and all things like that. But, you know, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about that in the yeah, future. The to disconnect for sure. Yeah. Right. So um, who should get hold of a copy and how can they do so? Well, basically, if you if you want to get hold of a copy, it's uh, you go to LR, the LRD website www.lrd.org.uk, and you click on booklets, and we will be there, sort of negotiating the new homeworking landscape. That's that's the name of the booklet. That's great, Natalie. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Now, this episode so far, we've looked at young workers. We've spoken at length about tech workers. We've got to grips with homeworking, but that's just skimming the surface of all the news and activity that's going on in the labour movement at the moment. And here, with his roundup of stories that you probably won't see in the mainstream media when it comes to unions, is Josiah Mortimer with his radical roundup. Thanks, Simon. First up, the UK's first female metro mayor has pledged to work closely with trade unions as she leads West Yorkshire. Labour's Tracy Braben, elected at the May elections last week, has pledged to build a new model of social partnership between unions, business and government in the region. She wants to establish a mayor's manufacturing task group involving unions to take West Yorkshire's manufacturing sector forward. And she's pledged to fight against cuts to union loan, as well as ensuring all young people out of work for more than six months have an offer of a job, education or training. Next up... Three quarters of the public think teaching assistants aren't paid enough, new polling shows. The poll conducted by Servation on behalf of the GMB union found that 74% of those polled said that the average teaching assistant's earnings of just £13,800 last year was too low, with half saying that it was much too low. GMB is calling for a substantial pay rise for school support staff as part of the local government pay claim to make up for a decade of what they say is real terms pay cuts under Conservative government. Also this week, Shadow Secretary of State Kate Green MP has given university and college union members a boost in their fight against cuts to jobs and courses by pulling out of an event organised by two universities planning to close courses. 
Labour MP has been due to speak at an online event on Monday 10th of May, organised by Aston University and London South Bank University, but pulled out when she was made aware of plans at both universities to close courses. Aston University is preparing to close its Department of History, Languages and Translation, putting 24 jobs at risk of redundancy. A UCU petition against the cuts has already reached over 6,000 signatures. Also in education news, a coalition of nearly 20 scientists and teaching unions has written to Education Secretary Gavin Williamson to challenge plans to scrap face masks in secondary schools from next week. The letter points to recent ONS data confirming a marked rise in infections over March among children after schools opened for just a few weeks before the Easter break. It points out that according to the latest data, between 10 and 13% of children who were infected with COVID-19 developed persistent symptoms after infection, lasting five weeks or more an indication of long COVID. The letter, which has been signed by several parents groups and education unions, as well as hundreds of parents and students, warns that increasing infection among children puts household members, parents and the wider community at risk. Recent weeks have seen several outbreaks of concerning variants within schools, the signatory said. Over in Westminster, trade unions and Labour parliamentarians have issued a joint call to ban fire and rehire. Nearly 20 unions and more than 140 MPs and Lords joined together as part of Unite the Union's campaign to prevent employers from using the UK's weak employment laws to raid wages and cut terms such as sick pay. In a letter to Boris Johnson, the unions and politicians called on the Prime Minister to use the Queen's speech on 11th of May to introduce legislation outlawing the controversial practice. Pressure is mounting on the government to take action as soon as possible, with a Unite Commission poll released last week finding that 70% of the public want it made illegal. The TUC also found that 1 in 10 workers had been threatened with fire and rehire during the pandemic, with that number set to grow dramatically as furlough ends unless the law is changed. And last up now, TUC General Secretary Francis O'Grady has taken the unprecedented step of writing to public sector pay review bodies, calling on them to recognise and reward the efforts of key workers. It was the first time the TUC General Secretary has appealed directly to pay review bodies. The letter says a significant pay rise for public sector workers is fair, affordable and necessary, and it warns that holding back the living standards of public sector workers will hit economic recovery in the UK. That's all from this week's Radical Roundup on the Union Jews podcast. Find the full Radical Roundup on leftfootforward.org this Wednesday. And back to you, Simon. Thanks. Well, many thanks for that, Josiah. Much appreciated as ever. And it kind of paints a funny picture of the world we're living in today, doesn't it, listeners? On the one hand, you have really strong public opinion saying that fire and hire is wrong, that teaching assistants are no way paid enough, that there shouldn't be these cuts to certain courses at universities which are kind of made almost inevitable by the financial model that applies but actually impoverishes our nation in so many so many ways you've got all that and then you've got polling results in the elections from last week which largely not totally of course not totally but largely favors parties who don't espouse the same sort of values that are reflected in those news stories that Josiah's covered there's a challenge for us and no mistake just time for my usual and heartfelt shout out to my fellow podcasters who form the Labour Podcast Radio Network. This is a collection of over 100 trade union related shows, including Union Dues, that are accessed through the Labour Radio Podcast portal. If you go to labourradionetwork.org, you can get through to that treasure trove of audio material. As ever, there is a companion blog to this podcast that contains links, 
background signposting all the stuff you need to follow up some of the things all of the things that we've discussed over the last 40 minutes or so you can find that on the makesyouthink.com website also if on the podcasting platform of your choice you could rate union dues or subscribe to us or both that would be very much appreciated thank you so my thanks as well to josiah to mel to natalie to mark and to, and to john but most of all to you for spending some of your precious time in our company. It's been great to have you along. I hope you'll all stay safe, look after each other, stay well. We'll be back on the 25th of May for the next Union Jews, and I hope to see you there. Bye for now. The Union Jews podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.